Recently, I was down in Naples, Florida to give a speech. I was flying in late one evening and flying out the next afternoon, so it was a very quick trip. I had to fly into Fort Myers, rented a car, and then came down the interstate to get to Naples. And when I finally got to Naples, I was really glad I had my little phone and my GPS, the moving map there, because there must have been about 10 different turns taking me all back through this residential neighborhood until finally we hit the beach and there was this beautiful hotel and it was right on the water and they had provided me with a lovely room that literally looked right out onto the beach. I got all settled in and tried to call home and discovered that my phone had no cell service. I didn't know there was anywhere in the United States that didn't have cell service. I mean, I'm standing on the beach at Naples. I can't call home. I have the internet. I can text. I, I can email. But it really did feel strange. I, I went and gave my speech the next morning. And as soon as I got through, I tried to get back to the, my room and, and get changed and get out of there as quick as I could. I was already running a little bit late. And so I got out to the car. I punched in the uh, airport address. And then I realized I was getting no GPS signal. It was not going to work. There would be no voice telling me which way to go. And so I just started thinking, okay, I know I came from that direction last night. And I just started driving. And then when it looked familiar, I thought, here's maybe where I turn. Here's where I turn. Here's where I turn. And I had no idea how I was doing. I felt like I was doing okay. In retrospect, I really was doing pretty well. Until it finally dead-ended. It came to a dead end, and there was a road, one that went to the left, one that went to the right. Nothing looked familiar. I had no idea where I was, and so I just had to look at it and decide, I bet it's right. I turned right, and I stepped on the gas. I was running late, and I'm going down that road when suddenly the phone comes on, and it says, recalculating. <laughs> and when it finally gets that, here came that sweet voice of a lady that said, at the next light... Make a U-turn. <laughs> I was running in the wrong direction. And when that happened, I couldn't help but laugh out loud to myself because I knew the next sermon series that I was working on. And I couldn't help but think, running in the wrong direction. That's what happens when you don't know where you are. Today is the first Sunday in Lent. For the next six weeks, we're going to look at running in the wrong direction. Lent is about the season of taking the time to examine your own life. It's about looking at your life, reflecting about who you are and where you are. It helps you to figure out where you are. And once you kind of figure out where you are in life, then you can ask the bigger questions of, what am I running to and what am I running from? Because I think so often you and I are running from things we fear, things we don't want to face, things like a past, our failures, our mistakes, guilt, shame. We don't want to face those things and so we start running the wrong direction 
We'll do anything we can to ignore them, to cover them up, to try to blame it off on something else. We don't want to deal with it. And so we run in the wrong direction and we find ourselves lost. Lynn is supposed to be the time when you and I stop and take the time to figure out where we are. What are we doing? How are we living? And how do we start running in the right direction? Running to God rather than from God. It's in the letter of James that we read where James said, Draw near to God and God will draw near to you. We need to figure out where we are and where we're running. What I want to do is I want us to look at the book of Mark. In fact, I want us to look at the 14th chapter in the book of Mark for the next six weeks. We're going to stay right here in Mark 14, week after week, looking at the disciples. Because Mark 14 is really all about when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, He's going to celebrate the Passover meal, and then He's going to be denied, and He's going to be taken and ultimately crucified. Now, when we look at Mark 14, we're going to see the disciples in an incredible struggle, and almost always, they're running in the wrong direction. I love where we start today by looking at this passage on the night of the Last Supper. It's the celebration of the Passover meal. And I really believe that what this is all about is about failure and shame. I love the way the Scripture's put together. It all starts off describing the Last Supper. They're celebrating the Passover when Jesus changes everything and suddenly takes the bread and said, this is my body which is broken for you. That's not in the Passover liturgy. This is my body broken for you. Do you understand I love you enough? I would sacrifice for you. This is my blood that is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus is talking about how much God loves them and about forgiveness. And then it says they sung a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, if you've never been to the Mount of Olives, I just got to tell you, it's one of the most beautiful places. To be there on the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, it overlooks Jerusalem. These trees are several hundred and hundreds of years old. I can see why Jesus went there with His disciples. But it says, Jesus said to them, you're all going to desert me. It has been written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, that verse comes from Zechariah 13.7. From the prophet Zechariah, there in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, it's where we read that statement. Zechariah is prophesying about the Messiah and saying the Messiah will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus says that to the disciples. I know you're all going to leave me and run away. They're going to fail. Fail miserably. And they will all be ashamed of what they've done. But Jesus goes right on to say, But when I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Now you think of what's just been set up. God's love and how much God is going to forgive you. And I know that in this difficult time, you're going to fail. But I'm going to go before you. And I'll be there whenever you come. 
You see, Jesus understood this was going to be a hard time for the disciples. I mean, you had Peter and all the rest of the disciples. They believed that Jesus was going to raise an army and he was going to go fight the Romans and reestablish the kingdom of Israel just like King David. That's why they were saying, can I sit at your right hand? Can I sit at your left hand? Then you had the Jewish authorities who were afraid that Jesus would raise an army. And he would try to fight the Romans, but the Romans would come and crush them and everyone would lose everything. Then you had the Romans. They were bent on keeping the peace and they were afraid Jesus would try to form that army. So you had all these people who were thinking about wars and kingdoms and it's not what Jesus was thinking about at all. And Jesus could sense the political winds with all these fears and struggles. He could see the handwriting on the wall. Rome would not tolerate it, nor wait. He would be betrayed. He would be executed. The disciples would be afraid. He understood. They're all going to run away. But after I've been raised from the dead, I'm going before you to Galilee. He says he's going to be there waiting. We've all been there. We've all had those times when you and I have tried and life is complicated. Life is not easy. It gets difficult and hard. And sometimes we're afraid and we're running the wrong direction and we mess it up. The message is there is forgiveness. In fact, when we stop running the wrong direction, Jesus said, I'm going to be there waiting for you. I want us to think about how you and I are going to confront our failure and our sense of shame. And there's really just three things that I want to say this morning. First of all, you are not defined by your failures. Don't let your mistakes, your failures, define who you are. When we start thinking about all of our failures and our mistakes, we feel ashamed. And what we forget is, you know, there are many times when you did well. God used you to bless life. That God can still use you to bless life. But we only focus on all of our failures and mistakes and where we feel ashamed of the things we did. We let those moments define who we are. You have the disciples who fail and then Jesus uses them to start the church. We are not asked to be perfect. We are not perfect. But we're good people. Good people who love God. And good people who love God are able to be used by God. It's when you try to define your life and measure your life against perfection that you start to define yourself as bad and you feel ashamed. You know, I've been trying to tell you about Jimmy Wayne through this, through this last sermon series because I've really become intrigued with the guy. He's a great singer and I love his songs. I've been telling you about how Jimmy Wayne, when he was raised, his mom and dad were very dysfunctional. His father left the family. His mom got on drugs and was in jail. She got out of jail and married a guy who would committed a crime and was on the run. 
Jimmy was 13 years old when they pulled up at 1 a.m. to a, a bus station and told him to get out of the car and they drove away. I mean, 13 years old, he was on his own. He was homeless, got into foster care and then group homes. If it hadn't been for the Costner family, he was mowing their grass and they, they came to see what kind of kid he was and they took him in, gave him a home. He made it through high school, made it through college and went off to Nashville and he became a star. But he tells of when he was in high school. He was 19. He was behind all the struggles he had had. The fact he was there was a miracle. He was 19 years old and he said one day there they brought a guy in named Jody Lee Hangers. Jody Lee was in prison and they had let him come to the high school in order to kind of speak to the kids. And he brought his guitar and he was playing a Christmas song even though it was springtime. And he was playing a song and then he'd tell his story and play and sing. And Jimmy was sitting out there and that day he thought, that's what I want to do. That's what I feel called to do, to play my guitar and to sing my song. He had had an English teacher who had taught him how to start writing down his feelings. Get in touch with what's going on inside of you. And so he had started writing these lyrics, writing these words. And he decided, I want to be able to sing and be able to share. So he went to the prison, asked the warden, could he get to know Jody Lee? He wasn't uncomfortable being at a prison. Remember, his mom had been there for a number of years. He knew about prison life. So he kept going to the warden and finally he agreed. And so he brought his guitar and got to meet Jody Lee out in the prison uh, grounds. And he'd bring his guitar and he started teaching Jimmy how to play. So it was out there in the prison grounds that he starts getting his music lessons, learning how to play and to sing and to tell a story. Well, finally, it's Jody gets out of prison and he and Jimmy lose contact. He goes on off and he's doing his thing. He begins to sing in Nashville and it is years later that he starts wondering, whatever happened to this guy, Jody Lee Hanger? The guy who inspired me to do what I'm doing, who taught me how to play the guitar. He went to his computer, pulled it up, typed in Jody Lee Hanger to Google him and up comes about a thousand names. Jody Lee Hangers. You think, what in the world do you do? So he called the first one. Hello, Jody Lee, this is Jimmy Wayne. Hey, Jimmy Wayne, I know who you are. First one was the right one. All those names, first one was the right one. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing great. How are you doing? What's going on in your life? And Jody said when he got out of jail, he actually had a, a recording contract and a publishing contract. And they gave him an advance and he went and spent it on drugs. And a month later, he was back in prison for another six years. And Jody said, while I was lying there on my prison bunk, I'd listen to you sing on the radio. I sure was proud of you. Jody was out now, making his way. And Jimmy said, I want to fly you out to Nashville. Will you come? Yes. Flew him out to Nashville, and when he got there, he said, I want you to go perform at the Grand Ole Opry with me. I want you to sing on the stage. 
It was a dream for Jody to do something like that. And so they went to the Grand Ole Opry, and that night Jimmy stood up and he told Jody's story. In prison he had taught him to play, the mistakes he made when he got out of prison, how he'd sung this song at Christmas, how it had changed his life, and he had asked him there to play that song that night. And so Jody came out on stage and he played and sang his Christmas song. And when he got through, everybody jumped to their feet in a standing ovation. Can you imagine what that night meant to this man? To be able to say to someone, we know your story. We know how you failed. We know the mistakes you've made. And yet, you are good enough to bless someone's life and to turn it around. And we want to say thank you. It really is the message we are forgiven. And no, we're not perfect. But I'm going before you to meet you when you're willing to stop running the wrong direction and to turn. You're not perfect. But we're good people. And as good people who love God, we've done good things. And God wants to use us to do even greater things in the future. If you don't let your mistakes define who you are and live in a spirit of shame. So second, what Lent is really all about, the foundation of Lent is you got to get honest and when you need, then you turn around and you go the other direction. You got to get honest about your life. Nobody else does that for you. You got to be honest with yourself and before God. Where are you? What are you doing? If you get honest and you're willing to turn and go another direction, well, that's when you get to find life. That's what's being asked out of us. You know, I told you last Sunday night I, I was going to be enjoying the Super Bowl. I know all of you were watching the Super Bowl. What a great night. And I told you last week that I was going to be rooting for Denver. And what a good time I had last Sunday night. <laughs> you know, I, I got to be honest, I, I, I really didn't expect Denver to win. But I've rooted for Denver for decades. And I've rooted for Peyton Manning for decades, playing back with the Colts. And so it was easy for me to know who I was going to be rooting for that night. And and what a great game it was and how exciting. I was with friends and I was screaming. I was hoarse when I came to work on Monday morning. But the star of the game that night wasn't Peyton Manning. No, it was a guy named Von Miller. Von Miller is a linebacker. He plays defense for Denver. And he had this incredible night and was named the most valuable player in the Super Bowl. Von Miller. Well, I started doing some research on him and I wanted to learn a little more about him. Fascinating story. You know, Von Miller almost got out of football eight years ago, and here he became MVP of the Super Bowl. Eight years ago, he almost quit football. 
He had grown up in a small town, DeSoto, Texas. He was really good, could have gone to a number of colleges, and he chose Texas A&M. His freshman year, you know, you get away from a small home, you go off to college, and now you're somebody, a, a big man on campus. I can see how your life is easy to get messed up. He didn't bother going to class very often. He skipped a lot of practices. He was just really not on a very good path. And his sophomore year, Mike Sherman became the new head coach. And when he came in, he saw what was going on with the team and how Von Miller was acting. And he called him in and said, you just need to know you're suspended from the spring game and you can transfer to any other school you want to go to. I'll sign it wherever you want to go or you do it different. And so how did Von react? Like you and I usually react. He was embarrassed, ashamed, and so you get angry and defensive and you blame the coach. And he stormed out of there, went and cleaned out his locker, threw his stuff in the back of his truck, and he quit and he headed home back to Dallas. And as he's driving back to Dallas, he called his dad and said, let me tell you what the coach did. Here's what he said. And I just quit and I'm coming home. And his father said, turn that truck around. Turn it around. You go back. You apologize and you do it better. Well, his parents had always been an important part of his life and he did what his father said. He turned around, went back, apologized, said, I'll do better. And he gave it his all and he did. He did great his sophomore year and junior year, senior year, won the Butkus Award for the most outstanding linebacker in the nation. In 2011, when they had the NFL draft, he was drafted number two in the first round. Do you know who was drafted number one in the first round? Cam Newton, who was the quarterback for the Carolina Panthers. Number two was Von Miller, who went to the Denver Broncos. His first year in the NFL, he was a star. He was a made second year, he was a star. But again, can you imagine what it's really like to be 23, 24 years old, suddenly you have millions and everybody is an adoring fan and you're bigger than life. Behind the scenes, he was not on the straight and narrow. He was messing up his life all over again. So much so that when it came to the beginning of the 2013 season, he was suspended for, uh, uh, for six games for the substance abuse policy in the NFL. In the end, he finally came back. He wasn't in shape, didn't have a very good year. In the last game of the season, he blew out his ACL, and now he had to go into rehab. He was not in a good place. It was his friend, Demarcus Ware, who was also a linebacker for Denver, who was older, who began saying to him, you got to do it different. Only you can choose to do this different. And he realized, I do have to do it different. That year, DeMarc, that year, uh, Von Miller got honest with himself. And so he called his mom and dad and he moved them from Texas to Denver to come live with him. Because he knew that if mom was living with him, he probably would do it different. His mom and dad have always loved him and been involved in his life and are at every game and they are supportive. So they moved to Denver. And sure enough, he began to do different. 
to kind of refocus on what do I need to do? And so 2014 was a great year. 2015 was a better year. And he makes it to the Super Bowl. And now he's the MVP and has this incredible game. So I've been watching that interview that night. And I've been following other interviews since that night. And whenever he gets interviewed and asked about how is he feeling and how did this happen, he always attributes really three things. One, he always thanks to Marcus Ware. I had a teammate, stood by me and helped me to realize I got to make a decision. And two, his mom and dad who are willing to be there with him to keep him on the straight and narrow. And third, well, it's his faith. Now, you got to understand, for Von Miller, he, he's not like Tim Tebow if you're a football fan. Tim is always out there talking about his faith. That, that's not a Von Miller. No, he's more like a Peyton Manning. Peyton is a man of great faith, but he doesn't talk about that all the time. It's not what he leads with. Well, that's kind of Von Miller. But no, if you interview him and you start talking to him and you ask him about his ink, he has tattoos down his arms and all over. He'll always tell you his first tattoo right here on, a, on his left shoulder. It was a cross and the words, King of King, Lord of Lords. When you see him being interviewed, so often he wears a cross, a large cross around his neck. And I saw the interview with him as they were saying something, can you believe that this has happened for you after all that you've been through? And he said, God is good. God is good. And I don't believe Von Miller was saying, I think he's more mature than that now, I don't think he was saying, because of God, the Denver Broncos wound up beating the Carolina Panthers. God's good. No, he had just been talking about all the mistakes he had made in his life and all the struggles he had been through. And I think he was saying, when I look at how I've failed and messed up and I've had friends to guide me and family to support me so that I could come back and pursue my dream and be the best that I could be, that I could have that opportunity God is good. God is good. You and I have had our failures. We've made our mistakes. Don't let them define who you are. You've got to get honest. Honest about how you're living and who you are. And if there is a change, then you've got to turn. And it's up to you to make the decision to do that. And when you do, you discover there is an opportunity because God is good. God is good. And third, if you get honest and you try and you make that turn, what you're going to discover is God is waiting for you there. I love that in the scripture. It starts off with a time about forgiveness and then it's all about the people who fail and are ashamed and it's like Jesus knew it was going to happen. He just knew this was going to happen because they aren't perfect. But he says, I'm going before you to be there at Galilee. When you finally get through all this mess and you quit running in the wrong direction, you're going to find I'm there waiting for you. That's the promise. And I've been telling you about Bob Goff. 
Bob Goff is a, wrote the book Love Does. He's a great speaker, writer. Some of you may have heard him speak in Stillwater. Some of you may have heard him speak over in Tulsa. But Bob tells a wonderful story about when his first child, Lauren, his daughter was born. When Lauren was born there in the hospital, he, uh, he was there holding his little baby, his first child, and he, he started looking at her right foot. It seemed so small. And he looked at that little right foot and all he could think about how one day that foot was going to step on a gas pedal. And it was going to go too fast. And it would not be able to get off that gas pedal quick enough to step on a brake and she was going to wreck his car. That's what he's thinking about. She's a baby there in the hospital. Now, I got to tell you, there are some things that parents just know. I mean, you just know the things that are going to happen. I remember when I was in high school and 16 years old, I had three wrecks in one month. And none of them were my fault. (laughs) This tendency got passed on in the genes to my daughter. And I remember when she was 16 years old and she had had her license for less than a month and she was in an accident on my birthday. It wasn't a bad accident. I mean, it was nothing like when she blew up a gas station. But that's another story in another sermon. No, there's some things you just know that are going to happen. So Bob Goff left the hospital and he went home. He got out a piece of paper and he wrote, Lauren, you are still my daughter and I forgive you for wrecking my car. He rolled it up and he put it inside a bottle and he went out in the backyard and he buried it in the backyard. Sixteen years later, Lauren got her driver's license And sure enough, she went out and she wrecked Bob's car. When she wrecked his car, she came home. She was very ashamed. She felt very bad about what had happened. She knew she'd be lectured about being a more responsible driver. And when she came in, instead of giving her a lecture, Bob began giving her all kinds of geocache clues. And he started sending her on this a treasure hunt, if you will, all over the city, going to find different clues and locations around the city that ultimately led back home to their backyard and gave her a specific place to dig. And when she dug, she found a bottle, and she pulled up the bottle and pulled out a piece of paper, and inside she read, Lauren, you are still my daughter. I forgive you for wrecking my car. The note had been waiting for her for 16 years. When you and I stop running in the wrong direction and we're willing to get honest and turn, there is a message that God has been waiting to give to you. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.